Anyway, that was fun, that last segment. We've, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, hoaxes, bad data, fake news. We spoke with Michael Shermer of the, um, was it Skeptical Inquirer? He does a column for, for Scientific American. We talked about uh, uh, why we did land on the moon. We also spoke with Phil Plate of, uh, of BadAstronomy.com and about that same topic. But I think what's really sad to contemplate is, is how much misinformation is out there being passed as legitimate news. When I listen to NPR, and, and you know, NPR is a cut above a lot of the other news sources out there, these so-called experts talking about the Brent Kavanaugh confirmation circus, I, I, just, I just had to laugh at how uh, Jeff Flake, the Arizona senator, supposedly works out this deal. I listened to this part live, one of the few times I was able to stomach it, where Flake comes out and explains where he'd like the FBI to take a look. At, uh, at, at these allegations, which are credible, and see what he can do. And it, it's just, if, if there was an example of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we're going to do an investigation, I, I think this would be such a case. Reports are coming out that women that want to talk to the FBI about what, uh, what Kavanaugh did or did not do <laughs> are being turned down. And they're admitting that they're under no mandate to do a criminal investigation into this. They're just basically doing sort of a glorified background check. I think the whole thing makes people feel better, uh, at least the opponents of, of Kavanaugh, feel a little bit better about this whole thing. That but, you know, Before they're going to vote on it, they're going to take a look. Meanwhile, the supporters of Kavanaugh were like, yeah, 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 right, they're going to take a look. And it appears as we talk into a microphone at the moment that uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation looks pretty assured along what's being described as a party-line vote. You know, the committee votes 11 to 10 along party lines to pass him along to the to the, uh, the full Senate, which is expected to vote along party lines 51 to 49 for him. Well, I should say at least 51 to 49, but he's going to get apparently all 51 Republican votes and perhaps a few Democratic votes along the way. And it's just, it's a sad commentary on, on the state of our democracy. And just as a slight segue out of this idea of, of, of uh, of bad data. I wanted to, for once, quote from the journal Family Practice. Yours truly did complete a residency in family practice back in the 1980s, although I can't honestly say I was ever truly a family practitioner. Oh, by the way, last year I retired. But I guess I can still lay claim to being a licensed physician in the state of California, which I am. And uh, I was struck by, well, I was struck by the fact many years ago when my dear mother, my dear late mother, had received hip surgery, which was very successful. She was a tribute to, to modern medicine and how well she did. But I noticed her orthopedic surgeon afterwards had placed her on glucosamine and chondroitin. I remember many years ago listening to a program with Dr. Dean Adele where he expressed skepticism that this, these products could help uh, rebuild your cartilage and help with pain, etc. And now studies are showing that, well, they apparently are pretty dubious. I was a little surprised that somewhere along the way, the orthopedic surgeons uh, accepted the fact that this was a worthwhile therapeutic modality. I was a little struck by reading this article based on a study of patients uh, who had osteoarthritis of the knee and were treated with chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine sulfate, and they found out that placebo was more effective than the medications in their treatment. 
the supplement industry makes a lot of money in the United States and in Europe and all around the world, but a lot of their claims cannot be substantiated. Not to say that some of them probably are not good things to take. Medicine is sometimes behind the curve, and we do discover that, well, yes, that was a good idea. But this is more than balanced off by a lot of things being sold that, well, just don't work. Well, except for the placebo effect. And as we've quoted on, the, on this show before, and we'll quote one more time today, any doctor that can't make the placebo effect work for him or her is in the wrong business. Anyway, let's move on to other stuff. You know, one thing we intend to do in a future installment of this program is show or reveal, because we're radio, we can't very well show things per se, but uh, we want to we demonstrate how it is a Radio Parallax program is thrown together. We're hoping to be assisted in this endeavor by uh, someone who has aided us in the past, uh, Graham Smith. It is our hope that Graham will come in and uh, act as the apprentice as we explain how it is this show gets put together. I mean, I could describe for you right now how Mr. McMillan is sitting across from me as I speak into this microphone, and there are piles of papers all around. They've been pre-selected to sort of fall together in a logical pattern, and then we go through them one by one in, in a rather sometimes haphazard fashion. But then, if you've been listening to this program for some years, you would have guessed that that's how this show comes together. Nevertheless, I think it'll be fun to do a kind of walkthrough. We'll, we'll see if we can get that accomplished uh, in the weeks to come. But we do like doing current events, even though we never intended this to be a current events program. So let's, let's just take a little walk through some, some various sundry news items, as we are wont to do, starting with the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for platonic love. After the producers of Sesame Street denied a claim by one of the show's former writers that longtime puppet roommates Bert and Ernie were designed to portray a homosexual relationship. Sesame Workshop was quoted as saying, Bert and Ernie are best friends, but puppets do not have a sexual orientation. Well, Mr. McMillan has speculated about the nature of their being longtime companions and confirmed bachelors. Radio Parallax remains neutral on this topic. It was, on the other hand, in our opinion, a bad week last week for setting goals and achieving them. With the news that Denise mueller Koronik, age 45, has pedaled a bicycle at 184 miles an hour on the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah. She evidently was drafting behind a gasoline-powered dragster that had towed her up to 150. This did set a new world record for human-powered cycling. Or at least, human-powered cycling drafting behind a dragster after being towed to 150. Some people, we think, probably ought to just stick to maybe, you know, crossword puzzles. And speaking of exercise, it was 
an ugly week a couple weeks back for what's described as post-workout nutrition with the news that Jaroslav Bobrowski, a triathlete in training, was banned from an all-you-can-eat sushi restaurant in Germany after he finished devouring 100 plates of sushi. The proprietor told local reporters, that is not normal. Personally, radio, here at Radio Parallax, we have to speculate over <laughs> how, how it can be that someone who is evidently a world-class glutton could also be a triathlete in training. And speaking of medicine, as we were just a moment ago, I have to be honest with you and state that I, I apologize for the medical profession's inability to decide what it is we should or should not eat. We ought to have this nailed on a little bit better by now. Yes, we humans are omnivores. We can eat all kinds of different diets and we can thrive on them. But it's, it's distressing to see an, a new study that's out now and showing that, you know, in moderation, whole milk and full fat yogurt and cheese might in fact help protect against heart disease and stroke. This is based on a recent study of more than 130,000 people across 21 countries over nine years which noted that participants who ate two or more daily servings of full-fat dairy had a 22% lower risk of heart disease and a 34% lower risk of stroke and a 23% lower risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. And I apologize for the fact that we don't have this nailed down. And uh, the word on probiotics is that although it's a good idea in theory, we still really don't know how to do it. We've been reporting on this on this program for many years. Eventually, I think we will figure this out. <laughs> we figure out the nutrition mysteries. There's no doubt that good will come out of uh, adjusting our intestinal bacteria and presumably fungi and maybe a few other viruses. Who knows? But before you spend an awful lot of money on a high-priced uh, supplement, just concentrate on eating a balanced diet. And yeah... I know you've heard that term, balanced diet, and don't know what it means. That's okay. Nobody else does either. <laughs> Just try and eat a varied diet, I guess. A lot of vegetables. Don't eat an excessive amount of fat. By the way, we'd like to suggest to our listenership that we're going to seek a return to the program by Neil deGrasse Tyson. To quote from the Week magazine's author of the week section, Neil deGrasse Tyson is finally willing to admit that advanced stargazing is no innocent pastime, and that they're quoting Amanda Marcotte from Salon.com. They note that the famed astrophysicist who hosts Fox TV's Cosmos series says he came to that realization more than a decade ago while he was attending a space symposium. The second Iraq war had just begun, as TV reporters named the artillery being used and the weaponry fired, a Boeing this, a Lockheed Martin that, employees of those companies stood and cheered. I was very saddened by this, says Tyson. I was like, whoa, people are dying in this. What's going on? But he quickly realized that his pacifist instincts and those of his fellow academics had blinded him to how much his field depended on a centuries-old alliance with the wagers of war. Science, he says, has always piggybacked geopolitically-driven activities. Tyson has a new book out titled Accessory to War, and it details that history. We're reminded in it that navies have always depended for navigation on experts on the night sky, that Galileo sold his telescopes to commanders trying to spot enemy ships on the horizon, and that 1969's moon landing wouldn't have taken place without the massive spending unleashed by our desire to stay a step ahead of the Soviet Union. 
It sounds like a very interesting book, and Neil deGrasse Tyson is an always interesting speaker. We'll see if we can't get him back on about this very topic. And here's an item from our favorite supplemental magazine that we cannot resist. According to the New York Times, as repeated in the week, motorcycles no longer signify youth and rebellion. In 1990, the median age of riders was 32. By 2017, it had risen to 42. Sales peaked at 1.1 million in 2007 before the recession. Since then, they've been cut in half to 538,000. All right, I got two piles we could go with. One is a bunch of obituaries that have piled up. And since we spent <laughs> most of the first segment uh, with a glorified obituary, I guess you might say, of Alan Abel, let's not do that. Let's instead do the science pile, which is trying to bring up good news items from the world of science. And although I do actually have a literal physical pile right behind me in a radio parallax first, I'm going to use my cell phone. Oh, no. A good friend of this program, Dr. David Mantic, sent me a copy of, uh, of this news article. And Google, perhaps not coincidentally, decided that they should show it to me. And uh, I don't know. Somebody seems to know what I like. The news item concerns a small body out beyond Pluto titled TG387. Deciding that that wasn't a very catchy term, it has been renamed unofficially The Goblin, which we have to admit is pretty catchy. Now, several of the news items about this are referring to it as a dwarf planet. It is not a dwarf planet. But it's, it's hard to put a label on it because it's, it's unlike anything ever seen. Its estimated diameter is just 186 miles. That makes it just over one-tenth the size of Pluto. Pretty small, yet big enough to be detected by modern instruments, which is a tribute to what scientists can actually see out there. The Goblin is two and a half times as far out in space as is Pluto which makes it one of the furthest out things ever found, if not the furthest out thing. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. It is on an extremely elliptical orbit, very extreme. Right now, it's as close as it ever gets. Actually, when they run the numbers on the Goblin, they note that Pluto sits at an average of 45 astronomical units from the sun. One AU represents how far we are from the sun, we, planet Earth. Pluto's 40 times further out. Well, the Goblin gets no closer than 65 AU to the Sun. And calculations of its orbit show that it goes out at its furthest to 2,300 AU. This is into a region of space called the Oort Cloud, from which comets regularly uh, get dislodged and come down to Earth. Doing the math on this shows that the Goblin takes 40,000 years to complete one orbit of the Sun. Scientists note that 99% of the time in its orbit, it would be too far away and too dim to get spotted, even by the fine instruments they have on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. So what are they going to call this object? It's not exactly a Kuiper Belt object, although it enters the Kuiper Belt, which is about where Pluto is, a little beyond, but it 
it does seem to go out to the Oort cloud. Very interesting. And perhaps even more interesting, the strange orbit of this little object seems to bear out the calculations of Michael Brown and Konstantin Botgin, planetary scientists at Caltech, who note that it and a couple of other very strangely orbiting objects, one called Sedna and the other one which has been nicknamed Biden, are consistent with the math indicating that there is a large object out beyond Pluto, Planet X, if you will, which is shepherding these objects into their unusual orbits. This object was discovered by a Scott Shepard, astronomy at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington. He found it along with some help from colleagues at Northern Arizona University and the University of Hawaii and the University of Oklahoma. Scott Shepard has written about this um, so-called Planet Nine. He did so in a 2014 Nature article, and uh, he was describing at that time how this, quote, massive perturber, unquote, would naturally affect these smaller objects and give them their peculiar orbits. With the discovery of the goblin, this seems to shore up this probability. In 2016, Shepard told the Washington Post he put the odds of Planet Nine's existence at about 60%. Now, he says it's up to 80%. You know, we tried to speak with Michael Brown in the past in this program and had no luck, but maybe Konstantin Botgin will be more willing to speak with us. We hope so. We're going to put a call into Caltech in the not-too-distant future. Well, figuratively speaking, we'll probably use email. And another news from space, and what's being described as a tentative finding, astronomers using NASA's Hubble and Kepler Space Telescopes have uncovered evidence of what may be the first exomoon. It has long been speculated that if there are planets orbiting other stars, and we now know they there are, we now think that perhaps more, more stars have planets than do not. And if they've got planets, those planets surely must have moons. At least so the reasoning goes, but pretty tough to see one, given the state of our instruments and how far away stars are, but, but they think maybe they've got one. What surprises me is how far away this thing is. This moon candidate is 8,000 light years away and allegedly orbits a gas giant planet, which in turn orbits a star called Kepler-1625. Now, the method of spotting planets around other stars, in some cases, depends upon seeing the mini-eclipse that takes place when the planet moves in front of its parent star. And in this case, they're looking for the moon orbiting that planet to change the light curve in a peculiar and regular way. It's all very tentative, but uh, could be. It is sort of neat that they use the Kepler mission to find a candidate. Uh, by this drop in light, and then they're able to use the Hubble telescope to get better data. Stay tuned to this one. We will. And now, wouldn't you know, Mr. Merlin just queried me as to how many astronomical units there, there are in one light year. According to my calculations, it's about 64,000 astronomical units is one light year. 64,000. I did the math based on the fact that I know it takes eight minutes for light to reach the Earth from the sun, a little more than eight minutes. So I calculated the number of minutes in a year and divided by 8.3. You can check my work, dear listener. Feel free to do so. But I think we've quoted the idea in this program that there may be 
a cloud of comets. The Oort cloud may be as far out as one light year away. Just know the universe is a big place. With all the bad news that's circulating around the world, we sometimes have to look pretty hard to find something that's good or seems pretty good. This one qualifies. Scientists have made an unexpected discovery. We always like things that start that way. This unexpected discovery is 160 miles off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina, and it is a massive coral reef at least 85 miles long. This is a finding coming out of a five-year government project to explore deep sea ecosystems off the southeast coast. After diving a half mile underwater aboard a submersible, researchers began studying what appeared to be mounds of rock topped by a thin layer of coral. But on closer inspection, they discovered that the mountains, some of them more than 300 feet high, were made entirely of live reef or coral rubble that had built up over thousands of years. Chief scientist Eric Cordes says we couldn't find a place that didn't have corals. It's incredible that it stayed hidden off the east coast for so long. The reef is mostly white lophelia, a stony variety of coral. Other lophelia reefs have previously been discovered off Florida and North Carolina, but never so deep or so far from the coast. And we would point out that a half mile down, there, there's, there's, there's no light penetrating. I must say I was blown away at the Planet Earth reboot, David Attenborough narrating, that showed uh, some of what is down at, at, at depth, where light isn't really penetrating, and yet creatures still have eyes because there's still light auto-generated light from bacteria and organisms. It's amazing. And speaking of deep sea biology, and how's that for a segue? Bruce Robinson, a scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, told the conference in California last month that they may have solved a mystery of how much organic matter is getting down to the bottom of the Monterey Bay Trench, which is like 12,000 feet down. It turns out that faintly blue tunicates, called giant larvaceans, trap microscopic bits of matter in large mucousy structures up to a meter across. Apparently, as they do this, their system of collection gets clogged up every day or so, and so they discard the part of the anatomy with all the trapped matter and let it sink to the bottom. Apparently, these... Mucoid structures have been measured at, as sinking 800 meters per day. Smaller free-floating organic particles, known as marine snow, sinks at a rate of just centimeters a day. Marine snow is the main food source for deep-sea ecosystems, but because it sinks so slowly, microbes in the water are able to digest much of the food along the way, consuming it before it reaches the ocean floor. Since the sinkers move faster, microbes have less time to nibble away at their cargo before they reach the bottom. This may explain how it, how it is the organisms they've been studying down there expend more energy than marine snow appeared capable of providing. These discarded larvacean houses may also help explain why microscopic particles of plastic have been discovered in all of the Earth's ocean's deepest depths. Scientists have captured some of these discarded houses and found that they do indeed contain microplastics. In fact, they're full of them. But I'm impressed. Something so basic, and we're just now figuring it out. And here's an item from the feedback session of New Scientists that, frankly, we can't resist. 
Here's the story. Two pigeon racers in China have been charged with fraud after smuggling their birds onto a bullet train to beat the competition. The ruse took place during the Grand Prix of the Shanghai Pigeon Association, a 652-kilometer flight from Shangqiu to Shanghai. Court statements revealed the pair had secretly trained their birds in Shangqiu as well as Shanghai, and when the birds were released by race officials, they quickly returned to their Shangqiu loft. The men then smuggled them onto a high-speed train hidden inside milk cartons and released them in Shanghai to fly the short distance home. Competitors cried foul when the two birds shattered race records, seemingly completing the eight-hour race in half that time. The men fessed up and were fined $160,000. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. And we might have a show on next week and the week after that that's a little more normal, but we're not sure what normal is. We can't promise anything. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you soon.